This is a podcast from Real Life Sango in Clarksville, Tennessee. Thank you for being a part of our online community. We would love for you to join us at 8.30 or 10 a.m. on Sunday morning at the City Forum. In the meantime, if you would like to share a prayer request, make a financial contribution, or take a step at Real Life, you can text MISSION to 97000. Now enjoy the podcast. Hey, uh, no, it is good to see you. If you are a guest, we would love for you to fill out a Connect card in your flyer, or you can text MISSION to 97000. This helps us uh, just connect with you and get you all the next steps that you need. It is great to have Pastor Freddie T back. I know he's refreshed because when I came in this morning, he was rapping up here. And so I was like, Freddie, like, that's awesome. Just please don't do this in the middle of the service. But he is refreshed and uh, literally practicing what we have been preaching and talking about uh, these rhythms. Uh, first two weeks, if you weren't here, we talked about some internal rhythms, the idea of abiding in Christ and working out of our rest rather than uh, resting from our work. And then last week, we said that our mission is not defensive. Remember we said that uh, we worship a God that is in control and that heaven is the space where God rules and reigns. And we are called as followers of Jesus to pray heaven where we are. And we said a dangerous prayer is to wake up every morning and to say, Father, I know you are always at work around me. Show me where you are at work and allow me to love others the way that I would want to be loved. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to finish with one more external rhythm. And it's an external rhythm that I have to say, as American Christians, we don't really get this very well uh, compared to our um, African brothers and sisters, but compared to our Asian brothers and sisters, South American, Central America, pretty much most of the rest of the world gets this one better than we do. Uh, over the pandemic, I read an article in The Atlantic uh, by a professor at Harvard named Albert Brooks, and he teaches a class at Harvard called Happiness. And uh, you can imagine being a freshman there going, that sounds like a pretty simple, easy class. I want to learn about happiness. But then uh, you learn some of the titles of his lectures. I'll just give you a couple. One was called Homeostasis and the Persistence of Subjective Well-Being. I don't have to tell you guys about that, right? We all, we all know about that. Uh, another one is acquisition centrality and negative effect. I have no idea what any of those mean. Thankfully, he dumbed, dumbed it down in the article. And it was really interesting. He aggregated like, like thousands of pieces of research. And one of the things he found is that less than 10% of our happiness is found in circumstances. And you might go, well, wait a minute, like when I get a new car, like, I'm very, very happy. And, and he would say, yes, you are. You go, you get like on, on a kind of a new car high, right? The, the smell of the new car. But it, after about two or three days or whenever the new car smell wears off, you go back to your baseline. And by the time you get a, a few years later, you get a second new car and it's even less. It's a less of a high. And so he would say that like the highs tend to go back to the baseline, also the lows uh, say you have uh, just like a devastating breakup with someone, for a while, your happiness goes down. But we're very resilient, and eventually it goes back up. And if you have another devastating breakup, then it's not quite as long. And then some of you are serial devastating breakup people, right? And it's like, oh, it's number 10, not a big deal. Let's try again, right? Um, so... <laughs> Happiness, thank you, Mason. So happiness and the lows don't really make a difference. Actually, 90% 
of, uh, what, of what people described as happiness came from things that you can control. And um, he discovered there were four things, faith, family, friends, and work. And I love this. I, I love it when science catches up to what scripture has always said, right? Because if you'll notice, three of those four are about relationships. Three of those four, uh, the first one is about the vertical relationship between us and God. And family and friends is about these, this horizontal relationship. And maybe you've heard the cliche, all you need is God. That sounds great, except that's not the way that God set it up. Like God set it up that one of the ways that we experience God is through people. It is through community. But it's so ingrained in our culture and even in our churches that it's about me and God and not about we and God, right? It's about, we even have the, the phrase personal relationship with God. And that, a phrase that actually is not found in scripture and I want to say that's a personal relationship with God is vital, but if it stops there, we miss so much more. And my contention is that our culture right now pushes against relationships more than any other time in the history of our country. And let me just give you a th three kind of things that I've noticed that really push against the idea of community. The first one, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, is digital distraction. Um, as a pastor, I've done a lot of weddings and sometimes I'll do weddings where I don't know a lot of the folks like, uh, out in the audience. And if you've planned a wedding before, you're going to know exactly what I'm talking about. If you planned a wedding, you know that, uh, for the dinner, you have to like put people in groups of like eight or 10 people. And for a while it's easy. Okay. Friend group, family, friend group. But then at the end, like you're left with like a bunch of like misfits, right? And you're like, I don't know what to do. Okay, well, we're going we're gonna to have two misfit, fit, two misfit tables, right? And like those are uh, the tables that are a little bit more awkward. Uh, some of you right now are doing the math and you're like looking at the last wedding going, oh man, was I one of the misfits? Well, I was always one of the misfits. But whether you were at the misfit table or not, the next wedding you go to, just watch. I've watched this over and over again. In the middle of dinner... In a lull of conversation, you'll see every single person looking down at their phone instead of talking to the person right in front of them. Like, these devices have become such a distraction. There's a, a great author named Sherry Turkle. Uh, she did a TED Talk on this as well. Uh, let me just give you a couple of quotes of what she says, and this is a little bit convicting for me as well. Listen to what she says. Texting offers just the right amount of access, just the right amount of control, she is a modern Goldilocks. For her, texting puts people not too close, not too far, but at just the right distance. The world is now full of modern Goldilockses, people who take comfort in being in touch with a lot of people whom they also keep at bay. And that's from her book, Alone Together. And then the next quote, she says, every time you check your phone in company, what you gain is a hit of stimulation, a neurochemical shot, and what you lose is what a friend, teacher, parent, lover, or coworker just said, meant, felt. Somebody just got elbowed, am I right? Oh, yeah, that's you, that's you. No, it's, it's us. We do this because it's, it's easier to text. It's easier to be drawn into this than to have face-to-face -face relationships. The second thing pulling against community is a thing that we call expressive individualism. Expressive individualism, that's like a, just a big word that means like we like 
are like we like ourselves, right? Um, a, a lot of historians will tell you that America uh, was created with this value of expressive individualism as a sort of a reaction to uh, some of the abuses of power that we saw in Europe. And that's why to this day, you hear things like to your own self be true, right? Like live your truth. Um, and it's true, right? Like we, we get to say like, yeah, I am, we are autonomous. We are free. We are authentic. We love saying that. We're also alone, maybe more alone than we've ever been. And yet our faith, submission to Jesus is gonna show us that um, autonomy should not be our highest value. And we're gonna talk more about that. And then number three is this. This is a tough one. The myth of the perfect relationship. Have you noticed that there is like way less tolerance for any struggle in our relationships these days? I don't know about you, but was the pandemic hard on your relationships? Did anybody lose a friend or maybe your family is, has like very strained relationships as a result of the pandemic? Um, I gotta be honest, that was me. Like I, I've lost good friends and it's, it's really, really difficult. What I wanna say though, is that if we will press through those difficult times, there is gold on the other side of that wall. Um, if we will let people in and let them real, know the real us. Um, we're often afraid to go there because we know that when relationships get that vulnerable, it gets messy. And then when the inevitable fight does come, we would rather just avoid it altogether. Or when we get in the first fight, the idealism is shattered and we just sort of leave rather than stay in the relationship and work through it. There's a Jewish New Testament scholar at Vanderbilt Divinity School. And she was being interviewed by a Christian and the Christian said to her, hey, I'm just curious, as a Jewish person that studies the New Testament, from the outside looking in, is there anything that you would say to us Christians? She didn't miss a beat. And she goes, yeah, it's really simple. She said, you Christians don't understand baptism. He's like, what are you talking about? And she goes, well, my understanding is that baptism is showing that you are being brought into a new family around this heavenly father, around Jesus, and you're put into a new family. But she goes, it doesn't sometimes feel like family. And she said, like, we Jews, we know how to fight. Like, we can get in a room and we'll discuss a Bible passage, and it's like this. But at the end of the day, we're still family. And she said, I've noticed with you Christians, sometimes you also know how to fight, but you don't go through the struggle. Rather than go through the struggle, you just, you sort of split and go into your own corner. Right? If you can't say amen, say ouch. Right? Like that one hurts. And yet it's true. And I want to say that it, the best parts of the relationship come on the other side of that wall if we're willing to stick it out and if we're willing to get messy. Now, if that all sounds like bad news, I want to tell you there's good news. And Paul in Romans chapter 12 is going to show us what biblical community can look like if we're willing to go there. So read with me in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. It says this, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. 
be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. I'm going to stop there for a second. There, there's so much. We could do a whole sermon series just on that part. We're going to just look at three things, though, uh, this morning that are challenging to our ideals. And the first one is this. We are called to a new family. Look at verse 10 again. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Doesn't that verse just sound, it gives you like warm fuzzies, right? Like brotherly affection. That just sounds nice. Well, the only reason it sounds nice to us is because we have like this sort of Western mindset. If we understand the context here, it's actually pretty challenging. In fact, if you go back really early on to the early church, there was a guy named Lucian of Samosota, and he was this Greek writer, and he watched Christianity growing, and he did not like it. And listen to what he said. He said, their founder, Jesus, persuades them that they should be like brothers to one another, and therefore they despise their own privacy and view all their possessions as common property. They, they look at their possessions as common property. I mean, can you imagine, like, if you came up to me and you said, hey, Tim, like, are you rich? And I said, absolutely, I'm rich. Well, why are you rich? And I just started naming, like, your stuff. You came up to me, yeah, oh, man, I have, I have so much stuff. Like, I've seen Mason's truck. Like, yeah, I've got this awesome truck. It's big, and it, it can carry, like, anything. That's, his stuff is my stuff, right? Like, that sounds crazy, again, because that's not our culture. But that is the way family would have been back in the day. And so, as foreign as this sounds, we need to understand that's the context of what family meant in this day. If you look at the first word, um, it says love one another. And um, this is kind of a combination word in, in Greek, philostorge or storge. And the word storge is one of the types of, one of the four types of love that C.S. Lewis talks about. This one means bondedness or affection. Now this is the word for family affection. And I love C.S. Lewis and he pointed out that this particular love is different than every other love. Now think about this, agape, if I say I agape you, that's unconditional love, that requires something in me. It requires something in the giver to say, um, I'm gonna love you no matter what you do to me. And then you have um, a philo and eros. Those loves require an attractiveness, right? Either on a brotherly level or on uh, the lover of a, a spouse, right? But storge is different. Listen to what he said. Storge is different because it meant the love of a mother for her infant and a love of the infant for its mother, a kind of automatic, natural, deep bond. That's what it means. That's what storge means. And then he goes on. Storge is not discriminating. Friends and lovers will say they were made for each other. But the special glory of storge is it unites those who most emphatically, even comically, are not. Storge exists between people who if they had not found themselves in the same household or community, would have had nothing to do with each other. Hey guys, that's church, right? That's, that's church. That's the people in your aisle. Like, hey, I, I love you, but like outside of this, like you would never put us together. That's what Christian community is supposed to talk about. And I love this line that he says, dogs and cats should always be brought up together. It broadens their mind so Church, we got to get that. We need to understand 
that our differences don't make us less than, they make us better. Um, the rabbis understood that. The rabbis understood that when you're looking at a scripture passage and you come with different ideas, and I think it means this, and I think it means this, that out of that discussion, out of that rigorous discussion, truth comes out and we sharpen each other. And I feel like in, in, in Amer the American church, not only do dogs and cats not go together, like we want to divide the dogs up, all right? Yorkies over here and pit bulls over here. Let's not get them together, right? And I, I got to tell you, like, I, I think we miss something when we, don't, um, when we don't allow ourselves to come together with the entire body of Christ and have that bondedness that comes from being a follower of Jesus. So that's the first one. The second one is this. We're called to radical, selfless love. Look at verse 13 again. It says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Um, the Greek words here actually means literally to give your money or to share your possessions. And again, when you're family, this is what you do. Um, in New Jersey, in our church, I had this guy... A really good friend named Mike, and he's one of these guys. There's a lot of you in this church as well. Like, you just can fix anything, and if you don't know how to, like, you can look at, like, a, a two-minute YouTube video and figure it out, right? This was Mike, and anytime my car, anything would happen wrong with my car, he would want to fix it, and I'm, we've been the type of family that, like, our cars are just to get us from, like, point A, like, to point B, and that's it. In fact, uh, in Atlanta, once we had a car that every time the gas tank hit a quarter of a tank, you couldn't take a left turn without it stalling out. And so uh, we'd have, I'd often have, have to figure out like how to get to the gas station by taking only right turns. You're like, why is that guy just going like this in the middle of the road? That, that's my car, right? So poor Mike had plenty of opportunities to practice fixing my car. And he always just asked one thing. He's like, just the only thing I ask is like, I want you to like be there and like let's hang out. And that was the way that we you know, formed relationship, but I always felt bad asking him. And I remember one time I'm like, you know what? He's just done too much for me. And so I took it to a mechanic and he caught me. <laughs> and you know what? He was, he was like hurt and offended. Why did I offend him? Because I robbed him of the opportunity for him to bless me and for us to have some relational time. And it, it hit me later on. I'm like, you know what? Like Mike understands biblical community better than I did because I had allowed this idea of expressive individualism of like, nope, it's my problem. And he understood, no, we are community. We are brothers. And by the way, this is what we're called to be as a church. We're called to look at our possessions and to share. And I have to say, one of the things I've told Freddie, he, he always asked like, what's your first impression of real life? This is one of my first impressions is like the generosity of real life church has blown me away. And, um, Every time we've said, like, here's a need, it's like over-the-top giving. And uh, even this week, there was um, a family in Kentucky that we're connected with uh, that has 14 family members in their house, and their house uh, was flooded. And so as a result of the generosity of our church, we're able uh, to meet needs and to give them um, a, a lot of what they are lacking right now. And that's because I feel like this church understands that we're family and we take care of each other. And your problem is not just your problem. If you have a problem, it's my problem as well. 
Now, you may say, like, this is just, I mean, a little bit, like, over the top. But again, you have to understand that when, when we talk about family, we're not talking about, like, family in the West. We're not talking about family here in America. We're talking about a family that was taking place in a very different culture. Um, th- there's a guy by the name of Bruce Molina that has done some studying on the differences in families um, in Jesus' time versus families now. And he talks about the difference between a strong group society and a, um, and a weak group society. Now, I have to tell you, I have preached on controversial things before, but this particular teaching has received the most visceral reaction because it is so countercultural to what we have here in, in our culture in the United States. Listen to what he says. And again, this is just a fact. This is what families were like in Jesus' time. It was a strong group society. And Bruce says this, in a strong group society, the person perceives himself or herself to be a member of a group and responsible to the group for his or her actions, destiny, career, development, and life in general. The individual person is embedded in the group and is free to do what he or she feels is right and necessary only if in accord with group norms and only if the action is in the group's best interest. The group has the priority over the individual. I'm going to say that again. The group has priority over the individual. And what he says later is, on top of that, a person in this time, their most important group was their family. And in the New Testament, this is what blew me away, the primary relationship in a, in a family was not the husband and wife. Now, this is like not how we live at all. And I'm not saying what one is right and one is wrong. I'm just telling you, in the Bible, the primary relationship in a strong group society was from sibling to sibling. Now, think about this. Jesus calls you brothers and sisters. That is the primary relationship of a family. And this was in the context of a strong group society where it was much more about we rather than me. And this just pulls against our sensibilities of, man, no, it's about me and my sensibilities and what I want. And when I need the group, I'm going to share the group, but, but it's all about me. And it's so difficult because it's just so in us. Well, how does this play out? Let me just give you two examples. And we hit on this, I think, a couple weeks ago. One of the things that we do is, in our culture, we look at somebody else's sin as their sin. You know, we're like, man, I'm, I can't believe you're doing that. But that's, your sin is not my sin, and my sin is not your sin. But in a strong group society, that's not the way that they thought of it. Like, they would weep over the sin of their brother and sister as if, it was their sin as well. And in community, we have a chance to shepherd each other. We talk about this at Real Life of grace and truth in relationships. And so let me just very bluntly, gently but bluntly ask you, is do you have anyone in your life that has permission to ask you the hardest questions, like the awkward questions that nobody else can actually ask you? Does somebody have permission to do that? Or do we sort of keep people at an arm's length so that they don't see the real you? <laughs> One of the things I always say is like, hey, if you like me, it's only because you don't know me well enough yet, right? Like, isn't that true of all of us to a degree? It's just easier and safer to keep people here. We all look pretty good at a distance. But biblical community is messy. As we let people in that outer wall and say, hey, 
I may look good out here, but here's like the junk in my heart. Will you shepherd me? Will you help me? Will you ask me the hard questions? Second example is this, is decision-making. Now, I'm not advocating that we become a cult and that like every like big decision in your life, you know, you, you tell 25 people and you say, all right, which job do I take? Or do I move here or do I move here? I'm, I'm not saying that, but that's not really our problem, is it? The way that we operate is if I have a big decision to make, I may ask a couple of people to pray for an unspoken and then I'll announce to everyone the decision that I've made. That's typically the way that we work. What if instead we approached it a little more like, a little bit more like a strong group society and actually let people in? Proverbs 15, 22 says, without counsel plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. Like just what if in our community, in our biblical community, in our relationships, we said, hey, I've got this decision and here's what I'm thinking, but like, is this wise? Like, how do you see it? What if we let people in and we listen to their counsel and then we make a decision in community and it's not just, I'm coming down from the mountain, here's the decision that I make. Radically, radically different than what we're used to. That's the second one. Number three is this, and these all sort of go together. Community is vulnerable. Community is vulnerable. Look at verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And again, very similar, right? This means that when you have a good day and you are celebrating some things that happened in your life, we are celebrating with you. We identify with you. And this is why when someone is mourning, we mourn with them. You know, for years, this is a little bit vulnerable. I, I couldn't cry for years. I really couldn't. And then the pandemic hit, and I went through a really, really hard time, and I learned to cry. I learned what it was like to have anxiety and to have panic attacks in the middle of the night. And I remember I had preached before on anxiety, but it was not from a place of really knowing what that was like. But after I went through that struggle, I learned what it was like to weep with those that weep. When I heard people struggle, I could now cry on a dime. And it's because I had gone through that. That's what we're called to do. We're called to be vulnerable in that way. And you say, Tim, that's, that's really hard. It's really hard to be vulnerable because like the thing is when you're vulnerable, have you ever been vulnerable with someone and then right after you're vulnerable, you're kind of like, oh my gosh, what did I just do? Like I, I went too far, I shared too much. And I wanna say, like that risk is real, it's hard. Um, C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite quotes, and yes, I love C.S. Lewis, he, he, he understood this. He says, love anything in your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you wanna make sure of keeping it intact, give it to no one. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries, avoid all entanglements, lock it up safe in its casket of selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark and motionless, it will change. It will not become broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, and irredeemable. The only alternative to tragedy, or at least the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the perturbations of love is hell. So yes, to have brothers and sisters is not safe. It is being willing to have your heart broken 
But some of you know this. Some of you that have experienced this level of community, once you've tasted it, you crave it. There is nothing in the world like it. But it is risky because you're putting your heart out there. And there's no guarantee that it's not going to get hurt. But the difference is when our relationship with Jesus is sound and that is our foundation, when you put your heart out there and you're vulnerable, you can get hurt, but you won't be crushed if your identity and your foundation is in Jesus. In Mark 5, 35, Jesus says, whoever does the will of my father in heaven, that's my brother. That person is my sister and that person is my mother. What Jesus is saying here is that I am reconstituting a new family around me, which means that our Christian life is about God the Father reparenting us into the family of God. It is reparenting us the way that we were meant to be parented. And so when that is our foundation, when our foundation is around the heavenly Father, because he sent his son Jesus to spill blood, this means like, in our messed up family relationships where blood is spilled, but it's because of our sin, it's because we're constantly like this at each other. Jesus says, you're never going to get this family thing right, so I'm going to spill my blood on your behalf so you can enter a new family. When you get that, and that is your foundation, allows us to put your heart out there and say, you know what, I'm going all in on community, because I, and I may get hurt, but I won't be crushed, but it's worth it because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Listen, real life, we're, we're a fairly new church. And so I feel like our relationships in some ways are just beginning. And you're going to have a choice. And the, and the choice is, are you, are you going to be a real life in kind of like this and give people just kind of the image of what you want to see? Or are you going to be willing to bring that wall down and get past the, how are you doing? I'm just fine to how are you doing to like, man, my week was not good. Can we be vulnerable like that? Cats and dogs coming together in a community group. Differences. And you get in there and you're like, oh, this is a little bit uncomfortable. And that's, that's messy and it's beautiful. And that's how God changes us. One of the things we say at community groups is, uh, at real life, is that community groups are the place where strangers become friends and friends become family. I want that for us because once you taste it, there is nothing in the world like it. We're going to be starting community groups next month, and I want to encourage you, every single person, I, I get it, like this culture is going to say you don't have the time. It's going to say, you've got to do this or do this. I want to encourage us. It's worth it. Make the time. Let's be intentional. Let's get in and let's be real. And let it be messy. And let's watch God show up in the most beautiful ways. Let's pray. Father, you're a good God. And this is a challenging message. And yet it's so exciting to think about what you want to do because true biblical community is family. It's not like family. It is family. Show us what it means to be brothers and sisters around a different kind of father, a perfect father. Uh, father, show us what it means to be vulnerable. Show us what it means to let people in. 
as we shepherd each other and spur each other on to love you more. Father, we confess that we mess this up all the time. And it's so easy just when we see those struggles just to, to leave or to fade away. God, give us the ability to persevere through the hard times, to know what it means to be brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, you're a good God, and we can't wait to see what you're going to do this season in real life. May it be all for your name and all for your glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. We trust that God is stirring something special in your heart today. We hope to see you on Sunday very soon. Keep it real. Keep it Jesus.